Hello, and welcome to Pop DNA, the podcast where we explore the literary and historical roots of your favorite pop culture. I'm Rhonda. And I'm Erin. And today, <laughs> Rhonda, what are we talking about today? Um, I think that this is an interesting episode. This is going to be really fun. Yeah. Um, I think that this is something that we have we've talked about a lot outside the pod yeah absolutely so this will be fun to get to explore it in a more academic or an analytical sense I suppose and I, I agree. I also think it hits at a bunch of themes that we're kind of always pondering in are, different yes. forms. It's, it's very on brand for us. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think there are themes in here that we care a lot about and analyze constantly in pop culture. And I'm excited to embark on this journey. Yay! So <laughs> we are talking about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the yeah. romantic musical comedy drama television series that premiered on The CW uh, in 2015 and wow. ran for four seasons. And it ended uh, just about a year ago in April of 2019. The series was created by Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna um, and stars Bloom in the lead role as Rebecca Bunch. Um, aside from Bloom, it also stars Vincent Rodriguez III, Santino Fontana, Gabrielle Ruiz, Donna Lynn Champlin, and Pete Gardner. Yay! Yay! So, Rhonda, what was your first, mm. your, our traditional first experiences? Yes. I don't have a clear memory of the first time or like a first experience with this show. Um, I think that, you know, I like when the first season started, I think I kind of watched it off and on and was like, oh, yeah, this is a this is a funny show. Like it's, you know, it's a CW show, but it's like <laughs> slightly older. Like it's, you know, the characters are in their 20s. Which right. I was at the time. I was in my 20s. So yeah. it, you know, felt very relatable. But it also, you know, I felt like it it was trying to do something with the typical tropes of romantic comedy. And I, I picked up on that from the beginning. Um, and, you know, like I said, like I would kind of watch it off and on, but I wasn't really like invested in it until maybe like the third season is when I really was like oh my gosh this show is so brilliant so yeah yeah and it's you know I I know you're going to talk a lot about the musical theater background and some of the kind of mental health issues that the show explores which I like neither of those are are things that I'm super familiar with like my background is not in those things but definitely on the romantic comedy front is where I really connected with it and just like all the the fun and interesting things that it did with that genre so yeah yeah kind of a more nebulous abstract relationship with absolutely (laughs) yeah so 
I was one of those people who saw the title and said, no, thank you. Moving on. Not going to engage. I was like, nope. Um, And, you know, it's interesting, though, because so much of the perspective in the show is something that I relate to so heavily. Um, I grew up about a half hour from West Covina, California. Um, (laughs) So I knew all of those uh, references and what it is kind of to uniquely be a Californian. I also um, have been a musical theater kid for 23 years. So like the perspective of the show is something I feel has formed me as a human being, but I did not get into the show um, because I judged a book by its name. <laughs> I judged a television show yeah. by its name um, and was so, so pleasantly surprised by just how this show um, is written. I think that it's incredible. Um, yeah. Again, another kind of nebulous first thing, but it does definitely <laughs> feel like perspectives in this show are things I relate to so much. Yeah. So, have you been to West Covina, California? It's kind of a, it's a small place, but yes. <laughs> yeah. A like lot... that general area. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those places in California kind of just like, you can't tell where one begins and one sure, ends. Sure, sure. They kind point. of run into each other. <laughs> yeah, but certainly, I certainly have. Um, so I, I was cracking up. I get the, the, the theme song from the first season gets stuck in my uh-huh. head all the time. And I, I cracked up. Yeah. Because I just like, as you were talking about that, I just had this memory come back to me of when we were working at the museum together. <laughs> and I think we were like in the back room and I just started singing West Covina <laughs> and you like started cracking up and I was like oh have you seen crazy ex-girlfriend and you're like no what is that no what's and that? <laughs> yeah I was like oh well that's what that song is from I was like oh that that could have yeah. just been a song like from my life right yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny that's a great song though it, it's so catchy uh-huh. so many great songs and Honestly, like, when you think about, like, they wrote new songs for every single episode. Like, absolutely, each episode had, what, like, three, four, five original songs in it? That's, That's incredible. incredible. Absolutely. And to be able to, um, like, perf- have an entire group learn and perform the whole thing in the span of time that you have to get um, television show episodes out by, that's, you know, incredible. So the through line in the show, and I think in the genre of musical theater, um, in relation to these images of perfection that we have for women, and that, that pervades our whole you know, culture and society, but I think specifically in musical theater, it's it's still a very specific kind of um, limiting view of women, or it can be, mm-hmm. and it historically has been. So um, Rachel Bloom discusses how musical theater has tropes for that pers- uh, perfection for its female characters. Um, and I, I know it for firsthand um, from like your character heels and the outfits for women um, mm-hmm. 
that you're you're expected to wear a full face of makeup and um, false eyelashes and wigs and and be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the classic songs, which have been given to women and which were um, allowed women to celebrate their women their womanhood, are very much from the male gaze in a lot of um, sure, yeah. Yeah, which is which is really problematic when uh-huh. when you you get kids like me who started performing in musical theater when they were five, and then your entire worldview of what it is to be a woman also like intertwines itself with these bizarro um, beauty standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something that happens um, because so many musicals um, really, the golden age of musical theater was in the 40s and 50s when this was really like women had their their spots where they were supposed to be and mm. they had their beauty standards and, and all sure. of that. And I think you can't see the history of musical theater without seeing those beauty standards, um, which again is difficult. Um, so... I think I wanted to take a look at how women are seen in musical theater across the decades um, to see how this portrayal may be changing with shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, where we see kind of the first season is her attempt at that perfection, and then subsequent seasons allow for a more honest look into an individual who is genuinely trying to find happiness outside of these societal um, ideals. Um, and I think that's a really exciting thing that you see specifically in the um, opening song. In the first season, it is a full-blown musical theater <laughs> romp with a bunch of these musical theater ideals referenced in terms of beauty and in terms of how she's kind of beveling and holding her arms. It's very musical theater cookie cutter. And then they changed, it blew my mind, honestly, when they <laughs> changed the the theme song to fit the different seasons. I was like, this show gets it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, and then how in a lot of shows, um, you get the theme song no matter what, but in this, it leads into the theme song in the first season. So it is, written like a cookie cutter cutter musical. So I was going to look at some other leading women um, from, I started in the 1960s and I went to um, just about present day to see how kind of the view of women in musical theater has changed or hasn't um, in some cases. So my first one um, was I'm from- I'm so by, excited for this. I, I, will, I will tell you that that I had to to put in my sources. <laughs> I, I had to find the sources, but I just wrote this from memory because I'm that person. Oh my gosh, so, you're like you are like the Leslie Nope of musical theater. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Like I I wrote this in my bed in like 30 minutes because I was Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> so, um Bye Bye Birdie was written in 1963, but it is set in 1957. So even though it was written in the early 60s, it's actually about the late 50s. Um, And we get Kim McAfee, and she is your cookie-cutter teenage girl. She's expected to be the picture of gorgeous perfection. And um, she sings this song, How Lovely to Be a Woman. So... Her excitement about womanhood is limited to lyrics like she's excited about forming a figure that's round instead of flat. Whenever Mm. she hears boys whistle, you are what they're whistling at. 
and other daydreams which center around being the objects object of a man's desire Mm. and that's not really offered it's not really offered commentary in the show and the right in the entire musical, you don't get a wink. You don't get like a, oh, but it's different by the end. N- no, she. You take she, it at face value. And she gets what she wants in that she gets the guy and she gets her figure. And she, you know, it's just, um, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I had to start with Kim because I think, um, it's just, how lovely to be a woman if you haven't just go back and listen to it because you you can't help but identify with her joy at wanting to be a, a woman and you know discover her identity as feminine mm-hmm. or not you know but she isn't really giving given the choice she just yeah. becomes a picturesque you know whatever you know, and I'm also thinking of um, in the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella. In yeah. um in my own little corner, she has that line about I'm a girl men go mad for, loves the game I can play. Yeah. And that line always bothered me so totally. much. That like that's what she wants. <laughs> like, I, I I know. It's Yeah. And it, it's so hard. Like I play I was in Bye Bye Birdie when I was fourteen and again when I was nineteen. And these beauty ideals, you know, are thrown at you as you're performing in this show. And it it is something that you kind of have to like reconcile with at the end Mm -hmm. of like, okay, so I just said this about my gender and about my identity. um, And I don't think it rings true anymore, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. while also celebrating those things that you do love about it. Um, Yeah. So from there um, and, I could be here all day talking about all the times this comes up in musical theater, but I just picked a few. So in 1972, we get the musical Pippin um, and the lead, the lead lady ingenue is named Catherine. And um, Catherine is again seen as the picture of perfection. She sings a song called Kind of Woman, um, which is kind of like, Catherine's a little older than Kim, but it's kind mm-hmm. of like an older adaptation of the same things we see mm-hmm. in um, How Lovely to Be a Woman. So in Kind of Woman, she's trying, her whole thing is to show herself to the lead man, Pippin, as the perfect feminine ideal and the reason why he should settle down. He should, in the show, Pippin is on a quest to find who he really is. And she is the argument for you were meant to settle down and get married and have that be the end of your journey. Mm, You're just supposed to settle down. Exactly. So as she's marketing herself to him, she says in the song kind of woman, she says, She's modest with a budget, conservative with a meal, just your average ideal. Like, hmm. which is inter- it's interesting to me, like, we see an update. It's not necessarily about what she looks like in this, in this moment, but it is about tending to the household. It's about my places in the home. She doesn't get any other descriptors besides what makes her marketable to a man. Um, and to become that companion to Pippin, which isn't better. <laughs> and they also, 
they also do discuss Catherine's, um, you know, she Catherine's appearance. She's, you know, tall and lithe and kind of just this gorgeous ideal. Um, and, you know, in the 1970s, it hadn't gotten better. By 1972, <laughs> we hadn't updated this this vision. Right. And can uh, I, can I, I don't want to interrupt, but is, yeah. is Pippin a, an adaptation of, uh, of a book? Or is I, it like an original story? I believe it to be an original. I know, okay. um... Yeah, I bo- oh, I even did this show. Yeah. Because I, 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 for some reason, had it in my mind. Maybe it's just because the name Pippin is, like, Pip. I had it in my mind that it was an adaptation of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Oh, right. But I know right. absolutely nothing about Pippin, so I have no idea why I thought that. But anyway. No, um, Pippin... <laughs> Pippin's a story about um, a king and a kingdom, and Pippin is a prince, and he... Is told, yeah, he's told that he is going to um, lead the kingdom and he has to find his corner. Of, he doesn't want to. He wants to find his corner of the sky or what he's supposed to do. And um, so he gets to discover his identity and Catherine just gets to be a prop in that kind ah, of. Okay, cool, 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 cool. And then, nice. she, breaks, then she breaks out of that and she kind of like they lose that character and the actress becomes her own character and says no to it basically. Mm. Um, but the character of Catherine is still very like idyllic. Um, and then, Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. And then in 1981, we get uh-huh. dream, we get dream girls with, Beyonce. Uh, with, you know, yeah. With Beyonce and Jennifer Hudson in the original cast. You're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They were very small children, but they were in it. It still worked. (laughs) Possibly Um, infants. (laughs) I did just just listen to Beyonce's version of the song I'm about to talk about. Listen, and it's incredible. If you haven't, go back and listen to it. So... (laughs) So in Dreamgirls, the the group, the Dreams, um, we follow their trajectory as they move from kind of hoping for stardom to superstardom they really achieve it um and in that of course as they're looking through um as they're going through their stardom they're of course held to certain beauty standards and ideals um i say of course because Mm -hmm. you know it's an unfortunate reality that makes me really frustrated (laughs) but that's that's a different conversation for a different time so the exciting thing about this show is that Dina Jones, a member of the Dreams, um, has this discussion with herself of, do I want to follow these ideals anymore? or And this, like, what the male gaze is telling me I have to comply with and be? Or how can I take the things that I enjoy out of those Um, things and out of being feminine and tell my own story so this was a really exciting um her power uh, her power ballad um listen is a really exciting kind of rejection of the things that Catherine and um Kim McAfee and everyone were held to before um some specific lyrics are in listen are 
Um, I'm more than what you made of me. I've followed the voice you gave to me, and now I got to find my own. And specifically to that, um, that's that's how it sounds in the first two choruses. And the final mm -hmm. chorus, she says, I'm more than what you made of me. I followed the voice you think you gave to me, and now I got to find my own. And mm -hmm. it's it's such an important distinction and gives me chills yeah. every time I hear it because she's break she's repeating it so many times this is the thing you gave to me and you gave this to me and then she really realizes no i'm the one who gave you our stardom and i'm the mm -hmm. one who like this is of me this is not of you um which is pretty groundbreaking for musical theater at this point and even <laughs> even today um sometimes this is still a difficulty um mm -hmm. so I just wanted to highlight that one as kind of our first breaking out of these female ideals that we're all held to. Um, so then I skipped the 90s because musical theater in the 90s is kind of like, <laughs> kind of like, who cares? Uh -huh. There's a lot of revivals. There's a lot of like, I don't know. I, I, I just... Again, I could talk about this for a million years, but um, I was I felt like I should limit myself. <laughs> so in 2003, we get Wicked. Um, and this is a really exciting conversation between two women who identify completely differently. So Elphaba is the green girl. She's the Wicked Witch of the West. And then Glinda is... <laughs> Linda the Good. Sorry, I'm just thinking of like, what if there was like a Dream Girls Wicked mashup that was about like all of Elphaba's sisters and they were called the Green Girls and they'd be like, We're your green girls. Oh my gosh. I'd be I'd be so about it. I would be so there. That's amazing. I just came up with that. I I, I, I wasn't thinking about it at all. It just I'm gonna me. I'm gonna say we're copywriting that right now. No one yes. can steal that. <laughs> I don't want to see 12 green girls on Instagram tomorrow. We better not. So with Wicked, it's the story of the, the Wicked Witch of the West and her eventual best friend, Glinda, who is the, the popular girl. She's... She's the good. She is, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, five foot two, eyes of blue, all of that. Um, so specifically in Wicked, we see we see Glinda as socially accepted and adored in the context of their college, and then moving on to when she becomes, you know, a figurehead and a, a politician. Um, and a lot, like a lot of that in college is because she's desirable to the male gaze and rich. Mm. Later, later on, it, the show does allow her to grow up and she does become a figurehead for being kind and being gentle. Um, so she does do her growing. But in college, we're introduced to this, I mean, basically a snob who, um, who's adored by everyone in her college. So because she's beautiful. Um and then we see Alphaba, who is intelligent, the smartest girl at the university, and yet she doesn't fit in with these societal ideals. 
and she doesn't care to either, so she's ostracized. Um, there's a there's a portion of the musical where she explores co um, conforming to these ideals, but then she ultimately decides to ignore all of these expectations and becomes kind of a, a rebel and a um, like a guerrilla movement um, political mm -hmm. leader. But okay. she does, the caveat here is that she does remain ostracized oh. for the remainder of her life. She fakes her, she fakes spoilers, but she fakes her own death um, so that she continue, can continue on in her political motives. She is never given that reprieve. She's never given that, you don't fit this one version of beauty, but we still admire your intellect. She never gets any of that. Mm -hmm. But so then, doesn't she doesn't she defy gravity? She sure does. Yeah, and it, it's a good moment. <laughs> Still brings a tear to my the, eye. The only the only part of of Wicked that I know. <laughs> it's it's a good it's a good part. I, I will say that for sure. <laughs> so 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 far we've had Kim and Catherine who were held to certain ideals, and then we had Dina Jones break through at the end of her saga. And then we had Elphaba breakthrough kind of earlier. Um, and then in Next to Normal, this is less about ideals of beauty and more ide about ideals of perfection. So mm, okay. Next to Normal from 2008 is about um, the journey of a matriarch of a family as she receives a, di a diagnosis of bipolar depression. So it, it fits in with, it reminded me of um, Rebecca Bunch's journey mm. of discovery yeah. here too, and of how this conversation of, is this label helpful to me or is it, um, like, how do I work with this label, you know, you know, so mm -hmm. um, the musical begins with a view of the perfect family at attempting to keep their cups all spinning with a smile so white and winning all the way. Very much, we have to be the what husband, wife, two kids, and a dog ideal of perfection, which ends up leading to Diana the mother and then um, her daughter, both kind of having these um, conversations about their own mental health as has been affected by their expectation, the, the expectation to be perfect. So um, it the whole musical explores kind of what it is to receive a diagnosis and then discover how you want to engage with the world and with um, this new label um, and things of that nature. So it, it was really groundbreaking. And I love this show so much for all the conversation it has about what is normal and what is neurotypical and why we favor those things mm. and kind of how an attempt at perfection leads to, you know, a really big hurt in your heart. Right. Basically. And finally, I had to end with my girl, Fanny Bryson, funny girl. Aw. Even though funny Barbara girl, Streisand. My babs, I love her. Um, <laughs> even though Funny Girl is from 1968, I think it really hits on some important things and kind of where I wanted to end this conversation. So um, 
because you know Fanny Bryce. Um, it's the this show Funny Girl is the journey of Fanny Bryce um, from you know rel- being a nobody to being a major star, right. and and kind of society saying you'll never be famous if you're not pretty. There's songs in this show like if a girl isn't pretty. Um, one of the and this is something her mother sings to her. She says, um, "If a girl isn't pretty, like a Miss Atlantic City, <laughs> all all she all she gets in life is pity and a pat." So, like <laughs> these things are ingrained in her. And then she she later discuss, discusses herself as um, her differences as she's of. Um, She's a bagel on a plate full of onion rolls. So she's not, <laughs> she's not different. She, I mean, she's not like them, but that doesn't mean she's wrong. Like, a bagel mm. is still freaking delicious, she'll have yeah. you know. And kind of how she identifies as a funny girl, not, um, not only to her appearance, but also, like, using her sense of humor to comment on her own appearance. Um because that's how she gets in the door. And then she figures out, oh, guys, it doesn't matter. Like, I have other <laughs> things. I'm beautiful in my own right. All of those things. Um, and I, I, I bring it up at the very end because... So, at first, the character of Fanny Bryce turns down a dream role in a musical to follow the love of her life, Nikki mm. Arnold. And then in the end, she turns down her marriage because he won't accept her as powerful in her own right. He would like her to give up her fame and stardom and riches to allow him to be the breadwinner and her to be a housewife. So No, thank you, my friend. She says, and it, it's really, you know, it's, it's devastating because it's a hard decision, but she ultimately decides that that's not the life she wants to live. Um, and I just think that that is similar to the, the conversation that Rebecca Bunch has at the end um, where she, there's that haunting, um, there's that haunting, well, what is the word? Gosh. Um, montage. There's the mm. montage where <laughs> she, she sees how she could be happy with all three oh, of the men. Yeah. And then she realizes, like, her depression would still be there. And those are, like, if she does not learn how to, you know, have the, like, a real discussion with herself about how to heal, how to move forward, and who she wants to be as a human. Um, And I, so, yeah, I just thought that that was really similar. Um, Like, that idea that if you don't know how to be happy on your own, then you'll never be happy with someone else. Absolutely. And and you can't um, give up the things that you've worked so hard for, for someone who wants to limit you in the case of Mm -hmm. Fanny. So that's, that's my not too short um, discussion (laughs) on perfection. Yeah. And like, I I think of myself as a musical theater person more than I Oh, totally. You totally are. That's what I think of. When oh, I think of you. That, that's such a good compliment. And I knew well, and I knew that like before you ever watched the show, like I knew that you would love that part of it. I'm like, Erin needs to watch this show. Like this I is did. such 
like this is such an like an Aaron thing in this show. <laughs> like she needs to watch it. So I'm glad that you did. <laughs> I think you were right that I definitely did need this. This was great. Yeah. Um, so from and th- I also wanted to say that met like. I'm discussing females because Rebecca's a female and because I myself am female, but that does not mean that men also don't aren't held to a certain beauty standard within sure, musical yeah, theater. And that, that exists too. Um, so guys, I hear you as well, for sure. Um, and <laughs> well, then, I think another, like, another, like, way that that crazy ex-girlfriend kind of takes on it kind of takes on like a meta commentary on musical theater because at least like in the later seasons when Rebecca's exploring her love of musical theater she kind of uses that as a lens to examine like all of you know the things that like she's believed about herself and why she thinks of herself that way yeah and especially I love that episode where she is in like it's that she's like in that show that's like a it's like a compilation of all these different songs and they're and like the one that she's performing and the one that Valencia performs like they realize like these songs are super sexist and do not have a really good message for women like why do we love this so much so I just think that like you know as someone who is not super familiar with musical theater I appreciated that as like kind of a commentary on like you know why we still love the things we love even though they might be problematic and super old but we can still use the still use like the good parts to examine you know uh, and even the bad parts uh to like examine how you know how we have viewed ourselves through like you, you know, like you have talked about how like musical theater has been such a big part of your life for your whole life. And you've used it as a lens to kind of view your own growth and your own uh, development as a person. So I just thought that was like a really cool way that the show did that showed that that's, you know, something that people can do. I guess. Absolutely. I don't know. <laughs> no, I totally, absolutely. Oh my goodness. And I think it's a conversation that um, friends and I have started having when we were in musical theater together, mm-hmm. especially when we have younger girls in the cast. We kind oh, of take sure. it, we kind of take it upon ourselves as like the older um, women to have these discussions of, we all love this. But also, mm-hmm. we have to love ourselves. Yeah. And we, as we're having the, this kind of conversation in rehearsal and then being these very stereotyped feminine ideals, especially if you're in a, like, if you have to do, like, a chorus line or, like, other, not the musical, but the actual thing where you link up <laughs> together, or other um, very stereotypical dance styles we always try to have that conversation of like, see your beauty and mm-hmm. then do this because you love it, but don't see yourself as this is all that you, you are kind of thing. Um, and yeah, that's something we've started doing 
as we've gotten older and had younger girls in the room and seen like, oh, I remember being that age and grappling with this stuff and not really knowing how to talk to people about <laughs> this when I'm 10 or when I'm mm. seven or, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. So I just wanted to highlight a few of the Broadway babies <laughs> in the cast. So I'll this start. Is quite, this is quite a rap sheet, I have to say. Yeah, they're. Um... Like, I did not realize that so many of the actors from the show had this background. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I'm always curious. I'm always when I hear these beautiful voices, I'm always like, hmm, have you done this or should you do this? I'm not sure <laughs> kind of which category. So Skylar Aston, who um replaces Greg, actually, <laughs> who I just think is such a gem. I love it. I think it's it's so funny how they handle Greg's replacement too. I know, how like there's like it's like he's a completely different person. <laughs> I know, it's so good. <laughs> so Skylar Aston was in Spring Awakening on Broadway, which is another huge discussion on gender roles and kind of um, things of that nature. Um, he was in Hamlet 2, which was... Hamlet not- 2. <laughs> which is, is a, co- it's a movie, but it's a commentary on theater kids and on <laughs> this great thing we call musical theater. Um, I think this business also- we call show. Exactly. It also, there's some interesting commentary too on racism in musical theater and um, these roles that we all, you know, comply to. He's also in Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which is next on my list to watch because it's also. Okay. Are you, okay. So I feel like that show has been, they have like marketed the heck out of that show. I see ads for it everywhere and it makes me want to not watch it. That's, <laughs> because, that's like, exactly why I haven't yet, to be honest with you. They're because... clearly trying to get me to watch it. So I'm like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> and like, it's it's hard for me now when, when we're in COVID-19 and all that I want to do is be in a musical. It is a little hard for me to watch musical theater right now, um, but I will watch it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Vincent Rodriguez the third, obviously oh, our beloved. Uh, Skylar Aston is also in the Pitch Perfect movies. Oh my goodness! Of course he is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's he's a dream boat, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we have our beloved Josh or Vincent Rodriguez the third, um, who was in Anything Goes, Xanadu, and Pippin. Um, On so that way. On Broadway, and I think some of them are off Broadway as well. Okay, um, like off off Broadway. I think like, like national, Cleveland. <laughs> like West Covina. Um, <laughs> I think like national tours, some of them, but oh, some okay, of them sure. were Broadway, I believe. Um, and then our original Greg Santino Fontana. <laughs> original think- Greg. I think he might have left to be in Tootsie because he was oh, the lead in Tootsie. Okay. Um, but Mr. Fontana is a fully fledged Broadway star. He okay. has appeared in Tootsie, Hello Dolly, Act One, Billy Elliot, Sunday in the Park with George, and Cinderella. 
Um, and then a few straight plays on Broadway as well. So A View from the Bridge, Brighton Beach Memoirs, Importance of Being Earnest. Um, Frozen. Oh, my goodness. Of course. Yes, he was also in Frozen. But not Frozen 2. N- no. <laughs> no. Because he was Hans. Oh, Hans. Hans has been in Frozen 2. No, we get rid of him. Um, And I think the impressive thing about his Broadway career is that it spans classics from Oscar Wilde and Neil Simon to brand new musical theater, um, kind of like Frozen or like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He's also originated many roles on The Great White White Way, including Tony and Billy Elliot. Um, and then Act One, he played Moss Hart um, in the original cast. And then, of course, we have Miss Rachel Rachel Bloom, who was mm-hmm. in Crazy for You off Broadway, because of course she was. She's like perfect mm-hmm. for Crazy for You. She yeah. has like she has the whole thing. Um, she was also on the she's on the writing team for The Nanny, the musical. Um, <gasps> what? But I You're don't the musical of The Nanny. I have to look into it a little more because I know that Adam Schlesinger did just pass away last Mm, month and they were writing partners. So I don't know. Um, I don't know how how that's going to make. Maybe it was all written already and maybe they'll still be able to do it. I hope so. Um, And then I wanted to note Adam Schlesinger, obviously. Um, He passed away on April 1st of this year. And he was a renowned composer who composed for a myriad of different types of music. I think you hear that in um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, how he can go effortlessly from one genre to the next without even really, like, I don't know. It's just no genre is better than the other, you know? Yeah, there's pop, there's rock, there's jazz, there's, like, straight-up show tunes. There's that country song there, about how yeah. the guy oh, yeah, loves, yeah. His, um, loves his daughter, but not in the creepy way. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then he wrote for Fountains of Wayne and other pop and rock bands. Um, and yeah, I think it's really exciting to me that the music in this show is um, just so transcendent of... Like, it doesn't matter if you hate musical theater or you hate pop music. There's something in there for you. There's a, I believe there's a Bollywood number as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. There's basically like a Disney song that the one that (laughs) uh, Leah Salonga sings. Yes. Oh, Like an an off-brand Disney song. (laughs) We need to raise a glass to Leah Salonga. Oh, gosh. She's so oh, great. She's incredible. Um, I think another kind of cool thing is that when Schlesinger writes for pop and rock, he has that sense of humor still in there. So mm-hmm. it almost sounds like a funny musical theater song when it's like a top 40 pop hit, um, <laughs> which, which is such a strength. And I think, um, yeah, it's just a really sad thing that he passed away especially yeah. so recently um and he wasn't very old was he he was like in no. his 40s yeah he which was, i mean it's you know tragic whatever age but that's yeah yeah it, <clears throat> yeah um he also wrote the musical the music for the broadway adaptation of crybaby 
and um, the opening numbers for the 2011 and 2012 Tony Awards. Um, one of the songs I think is You Don't Have to Be, um, like Broadway doesn't require you to be gay anymore oh. <laughs> like in terms of being, um, you can be a good leading man and not, um, yeah, which is just funny. <laughs> it's not saying you shouldn't be gay, but it's just funny. Um he also worked with Stephen Colbert on A Colbert Christmas, <laughs> The Greatest Gift of All. And he even wrote music for Sesame Street and Aww. The Muppets. Um, so, yeah, just just a really, for having passed so young, it's, um, it's kind of incredible about how much he was able to do and how much, how prolific of a writer he was. Yeah. Uh, just yeah raise a glass to him as well yeah maybe if you haven't heard one of these songs look it up or otherwise enjoy his work today or at some point um all right so the muppets the muppets that's like your thing i I love them i love them but um, tell me about tell me about why. So you initially said that you you kind of didn't were like against watching the show because of the title, right? Yeah. So because of one word in the title in particular, one specific word. I the word crazy, much like the word lame or other kind of words we still use a lot are problematic pretty sure. deeply. Um, and I think any discussion of Rachel Bloom or of Crazy X, or not Rachel Bloom, uh, they're, they're in my head, they're the same person. They're, they are the same, yeah, they're the they're same so, person. <laughs> they're just so similar. Uh-huh. Um, she's, she's just such a good actress, too. But um, I think anytime we talk about Rebecca Bunch, it should come um, and the term crazy. I do want to put a trigger warning. If you don't want to discuss borderline personality disorder, if you don't yeah. want to discuss mental illness, um, feel free to skip ahead in the episode. Um, this is a safe space. So, mm-hmm. so for members of our greater community who have received diagnoses, or those of us who know and care about those people, or however you relate to the term, um, I think that it can be scary when a show takes on the word crazy or the discussion of a diagnosis. Um, It can also be wonderful, you know, to see yourself in the media and represented and kind of taking away the stigma by letting you talk about it and experience it and kind of otherwise think about it with with media and with song and you know it can be really healing but it can also be um daunting to see the word because so much of what the general public understands about mental and behavior health comes to them from the media and so much of that message is problematic so then Mm -hmm. So then people kind of accept those tropes as factual and then think that they have done the work to understand communities and they really haven't. And and so I think anytime we're given a mass market discussion on mental health, 
um, it's always really important, and I think the show does a great job of this, to offer it as one individual and their journey with mental illness. It's not the be-all, end-all. There is no cookie cutter. There's no, like, you will always experience this if you are diagnosed with this. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't exist. So, um, so when we hear a show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and then we specifically hear Rebecca receive a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, um, which isn't really discussed a lot, um, and hasn't really received that pop culture, um, definition. So mm-hmm. it's it's ours to write right now. So mm-hmm. um, that being said, when we hear that that's being written about, you're on bated breath because you're like, are they going to write it well? Or are they going <laughs> to do us another disservice where everyone misunderstands an entire community of people um, who have, you know, a complicated and not all negative um relationship with their label and with their diagnosis um it shouldn't ever be a deficit based opinion you know like um so it is likely that this character of rebecca bunch will be used to better understand or bet or more um apply more judgment to Mm -hmm. people who experience borderline personality disorder um and there's still people are still discussing how they think crazy ex-girlfriend does with this conversation right, and that yeah. and i think if you love it if you feel seen by the show if you feel that this show has helped you to think about um this label then great if it has not then great also like mm-hmm critique it use that as a tool to help um but I just had to you know take a look at that conversation that they were having kind of how it has to be made personal so I don't think that there will ever be like a right or wrong answer it's just how you personally um relate to it well and I think that's such an important aspect of the show too and I think that you know coming up like coming at this as someone who doesn't really have like a lot of experience with like you know medically diagnosed you know mental health um issues but uh I think it's interesting how this character in particular like to see in the future how how this will further that discussion in pop culture yeah and in just like kind of in like the more general public who doesn't have that experience with that, but still, you know, might know someone or might have a family member or a friend who does experience that and being able to have like a pop culture reference to which, you know, probably isn't like, it it shouldn't be your only reference, but having, (laughs) but having something like that to look to and be like, oh, now I understand what my friend is going through when she says she feels this way. Like, and I wonder if that's, you know, like, if, if it's going to be helpful for furthering that conversation. Yeah, I really hope so. Um, yeah, I also, um, that episode 
about where she's receiving the diagnosis, where she's excited about it and where she feels. Right. Cause she feels like that's going to be her answer and that's going to be it. Like, yeah. Yeah. And she's like, and I, I know that that's a, um, that is a viewpoint um, from, from that some people feel that way when they receive these diagnoses is a diagnosis is gosh, I feel better because I felt there was something that I was not answering in myself. And now I get to have mm-hmm. this diagnosis in this conversation. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting, um, it was a, it was a really fun song to see her excited about having this conversation um, while also grappling with it. I think that was really nicely done. Yeah. 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 And I also really like the dress she wears for that song. Isn't it it's gorgeous? Really oh, I mean, goodness. we d- we weren't planning to talk about the costumes in this show, but they they're like so incredible. Like They're really really great. I mean, obviously for like all the musical numbers because they all kind of have like a fantasy element to them. Uh-huh. And how they like will reference like classic musical theater like there's the one the one song that's like the um that's like seven brides for seven brothers and so they're <laughs> all in like their like square dancing outfits yeah, absolutely. like yeah they're, it's great i we could have a whole discussion about I, the costumes I know. it's <laughs> it's really good um but uh kind of going back to um, the whole idea of the title of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So uh, Rachel Bloom actually in an interview with NPR in 2017, she was talking about this. She said the whole idea of the show being called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the title when Aline, who's the co-creator, and I were pitching the show and coming up with the show. The title was always meant to be deconstructed because it's a title that in itself lives in cliche. So we wanted to take something that felt like a romantic comedy trope and then explore beneath it. So a woman who gives everything up for love, partially because women are sold this bill of goods about how love will solve everything. But also, if you let love solve everything for you, you have a lot of problems. <laughs> she's so wonderful. I goodness. know. We don't deserve her. She's <laughs> um, I know. But I love that the... So, like, obviously there's so much good stuff in there. But I loved especially how she's coming at it from the angle of the romantic comedy trope of... yeah of a crazy ex-girlfriend because I think in like a typical romantic comedy that character would not be the heroine you know like that would be like the antagonist and the heroine would be like you know I mean at least in like a stereotypical or traditional romantic comedy the heroine would be like this very you know uh, like straight laced quote unquote normal girl who right you know is victimized which gross um (laughs) (laughs) yeah but I thought that this angle was really interesting because um the so the Aline Brash McKenna who's the co-creator and um was I believe the head writer for the show 
She is also the screenwriter for 27 Dresses, Morning Glory, and The Devil Wears Prada. Um, I love all those things. I know, right? And several (laughs) other things, too. Um, And she actually just, like, last month, she was on the Lessons from the Screenplay podcast. And a fantastic episode. We'll link it so everyone can listen. Um, But she was talking about how all of her works have operated within, but they've also put their own twist on and even deconstructed the romantic comedy genre. So, like, she talked a lot about, um, like, how The Devil Wears Prada, like, the story is not a romantic comedy, really. But she... um, she basically says that like it's kind of been classified as a rom-com because of the tone. So, and like all of her other, uh, like other works that she talked about have kind of had that same, like they're in this rom-com space, but they're, they're doing something different, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, And then she also talked about her, her background in with like the screwball, romantic comedies from like the 1930s and 40s and how that really influences her work um which I absolutely love those movies like the Katherine Hepburn Cary Grant like uh screwball comedies are so fun um yeah absolutely um So I thought it would be interesting to dip into the history of the romantic comedy a little bit and maybe kind of look at how that informed Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Awesome. Um, From a writing standpoint, uh, (laughs) because you know me. (laughs) Yay! Mm. So, um, well, and a lot of this will overlap a little bit with like stuff that we talked about in our Pride and Prejudice episode. Uh-huh. Um, just cause you know, coming from a similar, uh, root, um, source. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the, so there's, I found this great article from Glamour, um, that was written by Shanna Yellen. And, uh, it, this was like just, a perfectly like succinct but thorough look at the history of the romantic comedies. So I'm going to be pulling a lot of a lot uh, from this article for um, for my background on this. Um, but uh, she so Yellen uh, points out that if you're trying to talk about the history of the romantic comedy, you kind of need to define what it is. So. <laughs> Um, So she defines it as a movie or play that deals with love in a light and humorous way. So she cites um, like the Shakespeare comedies, like Much Do About Nothing, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like those are probably our earliest um, examples of romantic comedies. They give us the basic setup um, of what a romantic comedy looks like where you have two people who meet and they have conflict, but then they eventually fall in love and live happily ever after. Like that's the like baseline, very basic template for romantic comedy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
so, but then we get into like moving on from Shakespeare, we get into um, what we call comedy of manners, which is a comedic story that contains some kind of commentary on society or social issues. And that's often or even usually expressed through a romance between two people who are from like different social classes or just different societal groups. Um, and so these are rooted in very early romantic comedy of banners stories, which my girl Jane Austen is <laughs> the queen. Um, but uh, like several of her contemporaries and novelists who came slightly before her um, wrote in that similar vein. So like Francis Burney, Mariah Edgeworth, um, et cetera. Um, yeah. And then uh, Austen and Co. <laughs> informed, <laughs> <laughs> informed romantic comedies of the early 20th century stage and screen. So from like you were talking about Oscar Wilde uh-huh. um, and Noel Coward, George Bernard Shaw, all of their romantic comedies can kind of be classified as a comedy of manners. Right, right. Um, And then when you get into film, you, I think a great example is It Happened One Night from 1934, which is the Claudette Colbert, Clark Gable. Oh, Um, yes. I think, I want to say this was the first movie to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars. Wow. Yeah, I think that was the first year that they had the Academy Awards. I mean, oh, I could easily I could easily Google it, but I'm not going to right now. So anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was interesting about it? It happened one night. Is that this? Well, and other um, kind of films in a similar genre is that this was kind of like a lighthearted escape from. Uh, the Great Depression, which was happening at that time. Right. Uh, and also, so Claudette Colbert plays a, uh, like, a rich, um, like, society girl. And uh, it, it the movie kind of sent the message that even though she's wealthy, she isn't happy at the beginning of the movie. So it was kind of, like in a weird way, it was kind of like, you know, giving this message that, you know, money isn't everything. Like you don't, you know, I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's kind of weird, but um, (laughs) sure. I don't know. It's also like, (laughs) it's, I don't know if you've seen the movie, um, but it's like, it's really funny and it's really enjoyable, but it's from 1934. So, (laughs) There are, (laughs) there are a lot of things that happen that you're like, hmm, (laughs) I don't know about that. And also Clark Gable um, was not a good person. So there's that to consider. There's that consideration. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then we kind of get into like later on in the 30s and then into the 40s, we get into what we call the screwball comedies. So <laughs> this is this is funny. The name Screwball, I didn't know this for the longest time, but it comes from, um, like in baseball, uh, when a pitcher throws a screwball, 
it's a pitch that moves in unexpected ways. So it was kind of like you never knew where the story was going to go in a movie like this. Okay. Yeah. It's like, "Eh, okay. (laughs) Not what I would have thought the term screwball came from, but okay. Um, (laughs) But a lot of these movies had a lot of like slapstick humor um, and that very like fast paced witty dialogue, like not unlike the Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or like Gilmore would fit right into one of these. Sure. Um, <laughs> so this is when you get like Catherine Hepburn is, I think is kind of the queen of the screwball comedy. Um, like bringing up baby, the Philadelphia story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's kind of that genre and then as we move on into like into the 1950s and 60s um ro- romantic comedies change a little bit here um and so this is when like you okay there yeah okay. there's like some weird shuffling um oh, sorry i don't know what happened <laughs> okay um so these are kind of called like sex comedies but as in like battle of the sexes so a lot of the conflict and humor comes from like differences between men and women and kind of pitting men and women against each other sure um so Catherine Hepburn was in a lot of these too but uh desk set with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy is a great example of this and then also think like Rock Hudson Doris Day yeah, the class pairing, and they actually were in a movie together called Battle of the Sexes. So, oh. <laughs> a little on the nose there, right? Um, but the the tone of these kinds of romantic comedies was a little bit different. It was a little bit like there's a little bit more of like a mean streak to them in a weird way that like there wasn't there wasn't that sense that like men and women could actually understand each other it was like it they always ended with like well you know like we're not on the same page but we like each other so we'll just make it work like that was kind of the sense that okay i don't know um and then of course be you know because like the 1960s um like was kind of the beginning of of a big um, like sex positive movement um, and you know like a women's uh, like those like second wave feminism so like women were kind of um, coming into this attitude of like um, uh, of you know like being more independent and being more um being more like sexually awakened. Um, And so that definitely informed the movies of the time. Sure. So then in the 1970s, romantic comedies looked very different um, because of that social movement that had been happening since the sixties. So a lot of the like, not, I mean, I guess you can call them romantic comedies, but like, (laughs) A lot of the movies like this from the 70s 
were like more cynical and they uh so like I think Annie Hall is kind of like the seminal example of the 1970s romantic comedy. Right, right. Which like it it's kind of like it it kind of questions like if um you know like that kind of old rom-com trope of happily ever after it kind of posits that that's not real. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, which is an interesting in a way Annie Hall is kind of like a meta commentary on romantic comedies because it's calling out on and even something like the graduate is kind of that way too that it's like calling out that like this is very idealized vision of romantic love that we've had um but it's not realistic you know sure yeah um and it also um a movie like annie hall also points out that romantic love can't solve all, all of your problems and we shouldn't expect it to. Absolutely, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Which is valuable in itself, but but it still has that kind of cynical streak to it, which I, I, I personally am not always on board with. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to escape into something, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I get um, that. <laughs> um, but then when we get into, so like, we have that kind of, um, that like, like seventies, eighties, and then into the nineties is when we had almost a well. In the article, she calls it neo-traditional romantic comedy. So it's kind of going back to the idea of like a very romanticized view of love, um, romanticizing romance, huh? <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, so she cites like Sleepless in Seattle, um, yeah. which Sleepless in Seattle references An Affair to Remember a lot, which is a classic, it's not even a romantic comedy. It's like a, just like kind of a, a romance, a dramatic romance. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like the movies of, of the nineties, um, especially like the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan <laughs> were were kind of like calling back to that more old fashioned kind of romantic comedy. Well, and also in You've Got Mail when they talk about Pride and Prejudice all the time. So <laughs> it, was, right. it was kind of a more nostalgic, I think, look at um at rom coms. Um and then that so if we look at like romantic comedies from, you know, uh, from this century, I think that we see like a real mix of different ideas going on because we have, um, so in the Glamour article, she points out the movie Trainwreck from 2015. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, when it starts out, you think it's, at least when I saw Trainwreck, I like when it started out, I was expecting like a more that more kind of a uh, like 1970s view of a rom-com where it's more about like, you know, the woman's independence and kind of figuring out that, you know, she um, she like doesn't need love to be happy on her own. But then toward the end, it kind of flips and it becomes more of that traditional 
view of a rom-com ending because yeah. it, she has like a big romantic gesture at the end. Um, right. But in, but in Trainwreck, she, it's the woman who does the big romantic gesture rather than the man, which is kind of an interesting flip. So, yeah. so it's kind of a mix of both. Um, and I think we see that with a lot of, with a lot of romantic comedies now um, that, you know, have come out in the past five years or so. Like I, I have a list further down of like, um, of like different romantic comedies that kind of play with the genre like this, like um, crazy rich Asians or to all the boys I've loved before. I think those are kind of, kind of good examples of that mix of the traditional, but then also, having the woman as the protagonist also kind of come into her own independence through that love story. So I think it's really interesting where, where romantic comedies are now. Um, But if you look at the history of romantic comedies, I mean, like, I mean, all art does this, but they really, they hold up, uh, kind of hold up a mirror to society um, and show kind of how our ideas about romance and love have been, have changed over time. So like we saw in the 1960s and 70s, when women's role in society was so radically shifting, the, the tone of romantic movies also radically shifted um which i mean we i haven't even mentioned how uh, how romantic comedy has is you know mostly viewed as like a woman's genre quote unquote which is we could have a whole discussion about that absolutely Um, (laughs) um but i think you know because it is like it's the biggest film genre that is targeted toward women. Yeah. I think it really shows how, like, if you look at, you know, the history of the romantic comedy, like, it's always going to show how women view themselves within society and how society, you know, in general, um, it views women and accommodates women. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Aaron, should we just, just like have a whole podcast just about rom-coms? Because I feel like that's where I'm (laughs) I really think so, because so much of what you're saying about romantic comedies, like, overlaps with the discussion of musical theater. Yeah. And And those are two, like those two genres have merged so much in their history. And too. how they're, they're so much for women. Like I was um, like that. Uh, the song that I referenced, you don't have to be gay anymore to be good at <laughs> musical theater. Um, isn't a commentary on you shouldn't be gay. It's a commentary on this can also be for any man. Right. You know? Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, and I, so, (laughs) I, in my, like, list that I started making, and maybe you'll have other ideas 
to add to this as well um, of like more current rom-coms that are ex- like kind of breaking out of that mold that the genre has been in. I included How I Met Your Mother, um, uh-huh. which is, you know, it's it's a romantic comedy, but it's about a man, which right. you don't see as often. So I don't know, maybe we'll, we can, we can talk about that. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I've seen yeah. a lot of rom-coms, and I'm trying to think of others where the man is the one looking for, hmm. Well, the there's, one um, there's, I think it's called uh, a guy thing, or it's a guy thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Jason Lee. <laughs> I forgot about that one. And Julia yeah. Stiles. Yeah. Um. Well, and then like Five Hundred Days of Summer is uh-huh. is a deconstruction of romantic comedies in 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 many. It's like a very dramatic deconstruction <laughs> of romantic comedies. Um, but uh, kind of um, forgetting <laughs> Sarah Marshall, kind of yeah, kind of. yeah, that one. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so I. Um, I really wanted to look at how Crazy Ex-Girlfriend plays with the genre and the tropes of romantic comedy. Um, And so I have links to TV tropes, which, I mean, TV tropes shouldn't be like your real and everything about, you know, media. But it's an interesting place to start, at least. So I have links. Um, to the TV tropes pages for um, flirting and courtship tropes, dating tropes, and love tropes. Um, And so, like, some of the really interesting, like, the biggest um, tropes that we have and how Crazy Ex-Girlfriend took those and, like, uh, revamped them. Or, like, yeah. 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 uh so this is yeah it's it's some interesting stuff there's so so many of these though (laughs) so I don't think that we like we definitely this isn't going to be comprehensive but um but I'm just looking at the list of the flirting and courtship tropes and uh yeah there's there's so so many like competing for a maiden's hand <laughs> so a suitor challenges others for the right to wed or woo which <laughs> like yeah it's in there um oh, totally 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 <laughs> um yeah friendship as courtship is an interesting one yeah um yeah. Sitting sexy on a piano. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That's like her entire brand. Totally. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have... What are... So, okay. I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you have any favorite romantic comedy tropes? Well, sitting sexy on a piano is <laughs> my greatest pastime. Um... Hmm. I'm trying to think of favorite 
Uh, oh, gosh. I'm sure that I had some five minutes ago. What are your favorites? Maybe it'll jog my memory. <laughs> uh, well, and then I also, I, I'll link the page for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on TV Tropes because that, it's not, that doesn't just have the romantic comedy tropes. It has, like, all of them, but you can kind of weave through. So I like um, uh, Almost Kiss is a good uh -huh. one. Uh -huh. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot. And that's a great romantic comedy trope. Um, right. Yeah. Um, what's another good one? Anti-love song. Uh-huh. Um, so this cites Settle For Me, which, you know what? I think Settle For Me might actually be my favorite song in the whole yeah. show. It's so great. It um, is really good. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, a lot. And also, like, I'll just listen to anything that Rachel Bloom sings. Her voice is oh, amazing. Yeah, totally. So good. Um, I'm looking at other. <laughs> Everyone looks sexier if French. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just true. Like, we can't yeah. even. <laughs> um, terrible pickup lines. Are there terrible pickup lines? In there? Oh, I don't. I don't remember. Um, I, don't... I hope that there are somewhere that maybe I just didn't see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I like uh, bad date. Yeah, that happens totally. <laughs> These are interesting. There's so, I feel like I'm ill prepared to go through all of these because there's so, so many. But I mean, not a date. That's, that's a great trope. That's one of my personal favorites. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. There, well, there's so many. Goodness. There's so many. Secret relationship. Right. <laughs> Stood up. The secret relationship always makes me think of Dwight and Angela from The Office. <laughs> yes. Two-timer date. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Wait for your date. You're not my type. There's so... Yeah, I feel like trying to have a discussion about this, we're just going to... We're just going to be like, yep, every single trope, it has all of them. <laughs> yeah, because I think they do a pretty good job of really yeah. exploring this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, what Crazy Ex-Girlfriend does. Okay, so I think to have this discussion, we need to talk about the difference between a trope and a cliche. Sure. Um, so... Tropes are not bad or good. They're just like, these are just things that people use to tell stories. So <laughs> yeah, just yeah. because something is a trope doesn't mean it's a cliche. Let's just get that out of the way. But there are also cliches in romantic comedy. Yeah. But I think that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend does a great job of 
reversing those cliches, like upending those cliches. Um, And I think that the best example of when they do this is actually the ending. Um, Because she, Rebecca, doesn't end up with a guy. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of, like, in a way that's kind of like the only way that it really could have ended for her is for her to decide I don't need a relationship to be happy and fulfilled as a person. Um, And in fact, that's probably not the best thing for me. Um, Right. uh, And this is a a quote from uh, McKenna um, when she was talking about it. She said, Rebecca figuring out what her passion is and what she needs to pursue and what she loves and what she wants to do with her life was always the primary goal. And then the other stuff was really in a fun way and up for discussion. So they knew from the beginning that this was how they wanted her story to end. Yeah. Um, so, and it's, and it's also, I think, important um, that it's not shutting the door on her ever having a romantic relationship with someone yeah. It just is showing that she's finally come to understand that her journey wasn't about a search for love. It was a search for her identity and her uh, her place in the world. Yeah. Uh, and and that's what was going to make her happy. So Yeah, I just really love that that is how they decided to end it. Um I do too. I loved that. Absolutely. Um yeah. Yeah. So we don't have to have like a team Josh, team Greg, you know, thing. Right. Like, it can just, we can be team Rebecca. Team you know? Rebecca. Absolutely. Like, like how I was team Katniss. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, this show. Wow. Yeah. I, I love it when I'm wrong about how I <laughs> love yeah. that. Um, yeah. So, like I was kind of mentioning um, before, how there are there have been other works that you know are kind of in that rom com vein, but then they also kind of play with the genre. So. One other show, excuse me, <laughs> I'm a little verklempt. Um <laughs> One other show that was actually a, another CW show, Jane the Virgin, yes. plays with the romantic comedy tropes a little bit as well. Yeah. Um, which we we almost were going to talk about Jane the Virgin, and I'm sure we still will at some point. I think we um, have to. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that would be an interesting, like, uh, maybe you could do, like, a bonus or something that's, like, comparing Jane the Virgin with Crazy Ex-Girlfriends. That'd be that'd so be really fun. <laughs> um, but then other, TV, other like, TV series, um, I mentioned How I Met Your Mother, um, and uh, another one I thought of was The Mindy Project. Yes. Uh, which is very much uh, a romantic comedy 
and kind of plays with that idea that it's like Mindy figuring out that what she needs isn't a romantic relationship. She needs to, you know, be happy with, you know, who she is and her and, you know, um, her identity and her independence, which I think she knows from the beginning, but she kind of needs to like remind herself a few times yeah. along the way. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But yeah, I think, yeah, Mindy is a, is a good example Absolutely. to all people. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what you need an example of, look to Mindy. Just look She'll to have, Mindy. She'll have um, <laughs> And then earlier today, I was rewatching Isn't It Romantic? Yeah. Which is like a very... It's interesting. Isn't it romantic is like a parody of romantic comedy, but then it also is itself a romantic comedy. Right. Um, And I think I was like, I liked it when I first saw it, but then I rewatched the episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where they, it's like Nathaniel's like, fantasy sequence where he imagines that he's in a romantic comedy and it basically does the same thing as isn't it romantic but it does it better okay which Uh i find so interesting um i don't know i don't know if this is something that we need to discuss what do you think well it is interesting (laughs) um that the writing staff was just so on top of it that they like they fit an entire movie into an episode you know like that's just and I also (laughs) like I was a big fan of that the television show Greek where (laughs) Scott Michael Foster who plays Nathaniel was in that show and I think I think he does such a nice job of playing these kind of stereotypical guys but making them interesting I, I don't know I could watch him do a bunch of stuff I could see like I think his specific genre of comedy lends itself really well to that episode and kind of that conversation um that kind of not realistic at all very stylized <laughs> um yeah yeah yeah. So he's also just pretty. So <laughs> he played um Kristoff on Once Upon a Time. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I know him from. Yeah. Uh my and brain. It, I know. My brain. It's interesting to me too. I was just listening to the Jim Gaffigan stand-up special about marriage and about how our marriage traditions are a little bit bonkers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I I just think it's so interesting how these things that we see in in musical theater and rom-coms are things that we also kind of still uphold in our society. Yeah. Um, So it, it, I don't know, maybe that's just my specific perspective of being, like, I don't know. It just always seems like we uphold some of these things as truths, not as, like, things we can point to and laugh at, like. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. 
Like, why is it always, like, the man who has to make the big romantic gesture? Right. Why, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Or, like, we make a big deal out of it when a bride is older or when, Uh like, it's like, why? What? (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. know. It's yeah. just interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. What's our... What's the moral of the story? Um, sing maybe more. Sing more and be happy with who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, or, if, or, if, or if, you know, being happy with who you are is not possible right now then you know that's your journey and maybe try to figure out how to be happy with who you are and know that that's your personal journey yeah yeah and that's your journey and it's not like you have to know right away either like it can be a journey and you can allow yourself space to figure that out well that was the cool thing about allowing (laughs) Rebecca to be an like not twenty one when she grapples this, but she's mm-hmm. she's yeah gone, she's like in her late twenties I think at the yeah. beginning of the show she's gone through like she is by all intents and purposes she is successful right and she is she has still, arrived yeah she's still having those conversations yeah and I think. Sometimes we're fed the information that by 21 we're supposed to have it all figured out. Oh man. And be fine. <laughs> and I think that that is sad. So, yeah. <laughs> I was a mess when I was 21. I don't know about you. I, I was a well, I still, I'm still kind of a mess, honestly. <laughs> I know. I still identify that way. Um, I still identify as a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> anyway. I'm just generally a chaos tornado. I think we're just, like, I think we're just in, like, a really weird, weird mood right now. <laughs> I think this is... And that's COVID- okay. This is COVID-19, I think. This is the world uh, that we live in. Goodness, yeah. Just weirdness. I think, Rhonda, I think you have a really important realization you've come to. At the end of these notes that I'm looking at. Oh, really? Uh-huh. What is it? I think you should share it with the class. The part that's in purple? The part there where it's in purple. Um, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> I said Northanger Abbey was the crazy ex-girlfriend of its time. Change my mind. Because what Northanger Abbey did... And this is... Jane Austen is my inspiration for everything in life... She wrote Northanger Abbey as a as like a satire of all of these like gothic romance tropes that were popular at the time that was basically like those were like the rom-coms of the time because this was how women, you know, this is like the representation that women saw of themselves in popular fiction was through like gothic romances. Yeah. And so she took all of those tropes, like all of those ridiculous things, and she like basically just made fun of them. And <laughs> she was like, "Okay, here's a woman who thinks that she's gonna have this like big romantic adventure, 
but then it turns out that it's just real life and she just has to, you know, she has to deal with like real things and come to terms with her own like misconceptions about things. And that just like thinking about that just struck me as like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what Rebecca goes through. Like, you know, Catherine has this moment of, I mean, it's a little bit different in a novel versus like four seasons of a TV series, but <laughs> like Catherine has this moment of realization where she's like, I have been completely like, I've had completely the wrong perception or the wrong like focus in, you know, in what I've, you know, been trying to do here. And she kind of, like, shifts and has this awakening. And, and like, Rebecca, you know, gradually has the same thing. Like, I think for Rebecca, it's a more gradual thing. Because, again, it's four seasons of a TV series versus, you know, a novel, which is more self-contained. But they both come to this realization that what they were pursuing was a very, you know, was very, it was imaginary. It was very idealized and romanticized and not real. Yeah. And they have to figure out that the real stuff is what's important. Yeah. Um, and so Jane Austen did that with Northanger Abbey and, Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna did that with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And so they're both wonderful. Some smart people. Yeah. I love them. I know. It was like, (laughs) it's funny when you sit with a show and you write an episode of a podcast for it. Like, especially during a a quarantine period, these people get to be like your community a little Uh bit. Like... Yeah, I've been sitting with Rebecca here for a while. Yeah, man. I feel like I need to, I don't know if I need to, like, sleep for five hours or, like, drink a whole bunch of coffee or, I don't know. I I just feel weird right now. I get it. Maybe I need to watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend again. I think so. Mm -hmm. I think you do. It's never a bad time for that. No. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Should we wrap this up? Yeah, thanks so much for listening in, Fred. Let's wrap it up. Wrap it up. Yeah. Wrap it up. We should write write a song. We should write a musical. But about our podcast. And it would, at the end, we would have a song called Wrap It Up. Where it's over, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's over. <laughs> Can we have people dressed up like um, gigantic, like, Skype S's, which is yes. how we, like, record, and then they're, like, tap dancing, Absolutely. and then um, no one can see, but I'm, like, doing tap arms in my home right now, uh-huh. and yeah. then um, all of a oh, sudden... no, I get it, I get it. All of a sudden, it's over. Yeah. Oh, oh but we still have to write <laughs> our... Our Lord of the Rings musical. Oh yeah, we've been happen. Sl- we've been sleeping on that, Rhonda. We have. I feel like there's a there's a there's a cultural void. 
I do for too. Lord of the Rings musical. So we need to make that happen. And once again, we copyright that (laughs) right here and now. Verbal (laughs) copyright is binding in the state of Washington. Uh So that's all right. Oh, and it's going to have a flashback to to like Bilbo when he was younger (laughs) during like the the Hobbit. And Anna wants to be the dragon, she already said. She wants to be Smaug. So, so that's the recast. We're accepting yes. submissions otherwise. For uh, other roles. For other parts. <laughs> anyway, okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, this is a really weird episode. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I loved our content. <laughs> I stand by it. Dang it. I have no idea how this is going to, how people are going to. If people are even going to like this or not. I'm a person and I like it. Okay, cool. Well, that's all we need then. Okay, guys. Thanks so much, friends. Have a good night, day. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.